I remember babysitting once and I came down and he had his face covered in green and there was clearly green candy on the table. And it was like, uh, so Craig, what happened? And without missing a beat, he went into, well, there was a green monster who jumped in my mouth and ran down my throat. And that is why the candy is gone. And I think right then I was like, you know what? I like working with young children. This is High Tech High Unboxed. I'm Alec Patton. And in this episode, my friend and colleague Sarah Fine is interviewing her kindergarten teacher, Kemp Harris, because, well, kindergarten made a big impression on Sarah. Sarah doesn't say much about herself in the episode, so I'll introduce her here. Sarah is the director of the San Diego Teacher Residency, which is part of the High Tech High Graduate School of Education. She's the co-author with Jal Mehta of In Search of Deeper Learning, The Quest to Remake the American High School, and she's been on the podcast before in Season 2, Episode 14, What Can School Learn from After School? Now here's Sarah's interview with her kindergarten teacher, Kemp Harris. What year was it that you were in uh, my class? I was born in 83, so it would have been probably 88, 89. Okay, wow, okay. <laughs> Do you want to just start by introducing yourself, like sort of who you are now, sure. and then uh, we can go back to that moment at some point? Okay. My name is Kemp Harris, and right now I am 68 years old, but I started teaching when I uh, graduated, and I started teaching in 1974. And I continued to teach full-time kindergarten, first grade until I retired, or I thought I was going to retire in 2012, but the principal where I was said, uh, don't retire because um, we don't want you to go. So I ended up hanging around as a, an ISS aide for about seven more years, and so I retired uh, a couple years back. But yeah, I um, taught all that time, and this is what brought me to Sarah, because uh, Sarah was in my kindergarten class and um i remember your mom and your dad coming for conferences and it was just oh my gosh so fun talking with them yeah and, you, and your mom was just awesome and you know so um i can see how you went into education and doing what you're doing because uh they laid quite a groundwork of just hey we're parents here for you to be doing the best that you can actually be and we'll make sure we support you and they were just those awesome parents who would just show up and be awesome all the time. <laughs> <laughs> well, I, I will say that I look back now and I totally won the lottery. I mean, my goodness. <laughs> I, I mean, now I, right. So knowing I'm an educator too now, obviously, and now I work with novice educators who are just beginning their careers. And uh, I think about what it means to have been in your class in kindergarten and, uh, Gosh, I mean, I remember a lot, actually, and I, I don't remember that much about the rest of Bowen School. So, I, you know, I don't know what that says, but um, and I have my own children, one of whom is about to start kinder, one of whom uh, is in th almost third grade. So so my I feel like my uh, my kindergarten awareness is supercharged right now. And so I've been thinking about you a lot. Wow. OK, <laughs> I want to know, Sarah, because we haven't really talked about this, maybe even like shut your eyes if it helps you go back to it. But Go back to five-year-old Sarah Fine <laughs> going to Mr. Harris's class. What do you remember? What were your first impressions? So one thing I remember, and Kemp, you might remember this too, is my sister was just about to be born. So the very beginning of kindergarten, I think on the first or second day of that giant transition in my life, 
my aunt came to our house because my mom was in the hospital in labor and she brought me to kindergarten. And Camp, I don't know if you remember this, but you looked at her. Uh, we walked into the classroom and you said, I know what this means. <laughs> and, and I, I, what I remember is I already felt so safe in that space. And I, I was probably on day three or four of my first time at a you know, yeah. public school. But you already knew us well enough to know exactly what was going on in our family and exactly why. I don't even know if you'd ever met my aunt before, but it was like <laughs> you were part of our family and you knew, you know. And so I, I just remember that sense of safety. Wow. And I think I remember, I don't know, maybe we raised chicks. I remember plants on the windowsills. I remember a lot of playing. Yeah, we did, we did chicks. Uh, we did the plants on the one. So I think I don't know if we were doing. I think second grade did the uh, the butterflies. But yeah, we were raising chicks. I hated that unit because I was like so afraid that I was gonna you know the chicks wouldn't hatch and I was gonna have to go out and buy baby chicks and pretend we'd hatch them. But yeah, but that was all of that stuff going on there. But um, yeah, I remember that because um, you know, we had gotten together with you know your mom and dad to come in like you know for a visit in the summer room when they have the kids play that they come in and visit the class and. So I, I remember that, that yeah, you're, you're about to become a big sister. Yeah. <laughs> I, I think what's striking about that for me, though, is now that I have my own kids and I think about what a cataclysmic event it is for a child, especially a five and a half year old who's sort of fully conscious to, ha to have a sibling come into their life. Yeah. And also what a cataclysmic event it is to go to kindergarten in the first place. So those two things happening together, and yet I felt so safe in that space. And I don't know how you did it, but that it was- That is awesome. I'm so happy to hear that. <laughs> <laughs> and then I, I also just remember going back and seeing you all the way through. I used to call you Mr. <laughs> yes. I remember you would come and you'd go like, Mr.? And it'd be like, it's Sarah Fine coming in to visit. <laughs> <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> How did you come to teaching? Like, what, what's the story of how you landed in teaching and then at Bowen School in Newton, Massachusetts, of all places? I'm, I'm so curious about that. I think my upbringing was such that, I mean, I, I lived with my mom. She was a single mom. And we lived in, in Roxbury, Mass. But she wanted me to have better schooling. So I lived out in Framingham. And I was living with my um, aunts and uncles out there. And I think there was a part of me that understood that yeah my mom wanted me to be in better schools i'm like you know i'll take a, a, a worse school if i can hang out with you and be there but i think that because of that upbringing of always feeling that i was there for a good reason but still longing to be somewhere else i i sort of learned very early how to sort of begin to take on things and make them your own because I was always in other people's spaces when I was growing up. And so I had to figure out some really good ways to fortify myself. And I think because of that upbringing, for a very long time, whenever someone said, what are you going to be? I would tell them, I'm going to be a social worker. I mean, I don't know how you're in seventh grade and you've decided, I'm going to be a social worker. But what happened was I met this family through this gospel chorus that I was in. And, and um, this man was a principal in Newton. Uh, it was Sam Turner was a principal at the Oak Hill School. And his wife was the, uh, the pianist for the choir that we were in. But they had two kids, no, three kids. And so I sort of almost became like a foster kid. And I would do a lot of babysitting. And their kids were hysterically funny. And particularly uh, their two-year-old at the time, whose name was Craig, they called him Mr. Goobers. 
And he was probably one of the most engaging and funny kids I'd ever met. I remember babysitting once and I came down and he had his face covered in green and there was clearly green candy on the table. And it was like, uh, so Craig, what happened? And without missing a beat, he went into, well, there was a green monster who jumped in my mouth and ran down my throat. And that is why the candy is gone. And I think right then I was like, you know what? I like working with young children. And I started um, doing volunteer work at Oak Hill School. Uh, I was uh, a junior in, in, in high school. And that's when I began making that shift of, I think I'm going to be a teacher. And when I graduated high school, I went to Boston University and I did early childhood. And it was a lot of influence of that family. I met a lot of Newton teachers in those days. At that time, and this was like in 1969, 71, 72, 30, Newton had a bunch of male kindergarten teachers, first grade teachers. Mm. So my vision of what men do in education was really formed by that. And then later, it was sort of like you didn't see as many men in, in early education. But my startup was like, well, of course I can do that. Look at, I've got like four role models in one building. Do you have any idea why that was? Why there were so many guys? Wow, you know, I I know that when I was in, in college, it was a whole other time. I remember there was a book that I read called Push Back the Desks. And it seemed that at that time, there was a lot of very experimental education practices going on in terms of we're just going to not do it the old way. And so we don't want to use desks and we're going to be exploring all these other aspects of what kids bring to, to classrooms. And, and there was a lot of emphasis of that. I think it was probably a, a, a holdover from old hippie times. I'm not sure. But there was this real sense of, uh, of throwing out the old and just sort of giving people a chance to experiment. Um, and so when I came to teaching, I certainly had the methodology that I'd gotten, you know, at BU. But I, I will say that a lot of my emphasis, especially when I first started teaching those first few years, I was very much into, I just wanted to set an environment where kids were really comfortable and really felt empowered and just really knew they were appreciated and loved. And of course, we have to do all of the nitty gritty of curriculum. And I got that. But um, I was I was really into uh, um, I want to make a space for kids and I want kids to have a space to express themselves and do all of that. And we'll get to the academics. I promise. Yes, I swear to God, we will. But I was you know, I wanted that classroom to be vibrant and, and I was sharing music and theater and and, you know, all it was just yeah, it was a time. You know, there are all these young parents who are like, absolutely, go right ahead, have a great time, we love it, and you know, so yeah, it was a, it was a, a cool, a cool wild west of uh, hanging out with kids and teaching, so it was awesome. I'd love you to paint a picture of that if you can, like, can you, do you have any vivid memories of like a project or a theater production or, or some, something that went down in your classroom back then that kind of exemplifies that, that way of teaching? Yeah, well, it, it's like I remember we would do this thing of where we would pick a letter of the week and then you would like base your entire week's curriculum around, you know, this letter sound. And so it was like you were taking all, you know, your your uh, your phonics, but you were doing that with like some music and with some theater and with cooking and with dance. And so in a way, it was sort of like like Newton gave us the freedom to sort of say this is the destination that we want to get to. And how you get there 
we're going to leave that up to you. And so people were able to really hone in on what their strengths were and allow to run with that. I mean, we did like big theater productions. I remember doing Wizard of Oz and, and uh, uh, you know, you had a lot of trees, a lot of those trees throwing apples because if you got two classes together with like, you know, 50 kids, but um, we'd have like some kids backstage, they were like the backstage theater managers. And that meant that we'd have to read, you know, script and we'd have to do that. So it was a time when, when you were sort of allowed to, as long as you can get to the destination, we're not going to dictate for you how to do that. And I definitely remember the change when we began to get curriculum that was really system-wide because it was practically every school, depending on where it was and who the teachers were, there was a feeling that was very, very different. And I remember when we went to more system-wide curriculum and there would be like a math program that was for the system. I remember um, developmental math processes, DMP, and when that came in. And I distinctly remember one teacher saying, DMP, that stands for damn math program and I'm not teaching it. And it was like, you're just what refusing to teach what they're suggesting. It really was a shift in terms of the way people approach their jobs and that we had been from this get there the best way for you to this is where we want to be and this is how we get there. And you need to fit this mold a lot more now. And I remember they wanted to have, and it was very interesting because they wanted to have programs for gifted children. Mm. And so then you get into that real bind of okay so now my child is gifted which means so my child's going to get all of this extra stuff it's like eh. that's like saying if your child's not gifted then you don't get you know the cool stuff so we really got to that sense of wanting to get rid of the the gifted program as much as just meeting kids where they were and letting them go as far as they could i remember sitting in in first grade and reading the tolkien trilogies with one one first grader and and he was totally into it, and so I and so I'd have to read just to keep up, you know, with where he was because I wanted to give that child uh, a space to sort of say, okay, I, I get it, I, you're way out of, you know, on another end here, so I'm going to meet you there. But there are other things that I could do for other children. I knew that that some kids' music was their thing, and I could reach some kids through printing out lyrics of a song. Like uh, I remember, I used to love um the Coasters. It was banned in the fifties. And they had these crazy songs like yakety yak, don't talk back, take out the uh, take out the paper around the trash, or you won't get no spending cash. And so you'd type these out, and I have kids color like trash and cash because they rhyme. So, but it was again, it was like you could make it up almost as you went, knowing that you had certain things that you needed to accomplish and things that you that you had to cover, and then you know we really began to see here here is the I remember what it's like here's the unit. This is the social studies unit and it goes like this and at the end we'll all have that. So I definitely see that there are very good points, uh, particularly into reeling in people like me who, who, who love the wild, wild west. But at the same time, um, I appreciate it knowing that, okay, you're giving me a very clear look at where I need to be heading and where I want to end up. But, but I still appreciate that leeway. But it did give it a, a sort of a, some conformity to what was happening because the other side of that wild, wild west was that there might be someone who spent 
most of their time doing something that they just love because they loved it. But it's like, but it's not helping every kid. Mm-hmm. Well, so you mentioned Newton and I, I would say, Kemp, this is where I'm most curious. And I feel like we probably haven't talked as much in the past, but like, I think probably for folks who listen to the podcast later, we can, I should paint a little picture, which is so Newton's a, a suburb of Boston, uh, very affluent, very highly educated, very white and Asian, uh, heavily Jewish, very, and I can maybe say this as a Newton, former Newtonite, like very competitive, a lot of focus on achievement and college and, (laughs) you know, credentials and doctors and lawyers and dentists and professors and, um, you know, and so I'm just immensely curious what it was like for you as a male elementary teacher, a black elementary teacher, an openly gay elementary teacher in Newton of all places. Like, tell me about (laughs) that. And you stayed. I think also I'm just really curious how you managed to stay and sustain yourself and love the work you did. Yeah, I'll I'll tell you, when I graduated, one, to have a man who was in early education, people were really clamoring for that. And so I was hired right away and it was certainly there's a lot of influence by this um, family that i lived with because uh, uh sam turner was a principal there but i was so welcomed into that city and i came at a time when you would be in a school for two years and then there'd be declining enrollment so you would be moved to another building so i went um from the hyde school to uh the uh the cabot school to the underwood school and then i landed at bowen where i spent like 28 years but my whole time in newton and i and i know that that i'm sure there there are people who experienced racism i'm sure there are folks who experienced homophobia in newton it's not like that if you if you're in newton you're going to be uh, you know um shielded from everything but as an as a an employee and as an educator working in newton I found that parents were so, they were so enamored to have their children experience the diversity of one a man, one a black man. And then when I became really comfortable being out and gay, I just had a sense of real, uh, acceptance is not the word because I think to be accepted, it sounds like, you know, it's, it's a, a gift that someone gives you. It's like, I don't have to be accepted, but, but that sense that I was really appreciated for what I brought to that city. And so I never had those moments of regretting where I was. I think that when Newton got on the, um, there was an era when there was a lot of um, racial diversity training and Newton really spent a lot of time doing that. And then like all things, after you've done that for a while, you say, well, we've accomplished that goal. And we're <laughs> check. Done. Yeah, check, we, we did yeah. that. Um, so there, there is a period in Newton where there was a, just a lot of um, racial awareness going on. And uh, I was glad that I was in a system that was sort of taking that on. So my experience in Newton, you know, I mean, I remember being in, in you know, school and I remember, and this is like back in the 80s, I probably told you this, but, uh, you know, on Christopher Columbus Day, which is now Indigenous People Day, back then, you know, back in the 70s and 80s, I'd be like, well, it's going to be Christopher Columbus Day, and we're not going to have school as a holiday, but there are some people who are not going to celebrate this because it's not a happy time for them. It would be like you inviting a friend to your house and they discover your toys and take them. And at that point, kids would be like, ah! but I was always waiting, like when they went home and went, you know what, Mr. Harris said that kids, some people don't like Christopher Columbus Day. 
I never got that blowback. I, in fact, I'd have parents who would come in and go, yeah, my, uh, my son told me about that uh, coming to take your toys thing. I think that really let him know what it was like to have Chris Columbus come over and take your land. But, so I was very supported. Um, very supportive. I do remember there was one time there was one family that had an issue with my gayness. And the cool thing was my principal was basically said to them, I'm sorry that you have that issue, but it's your issue. So I, I was supported all the way through. So yeah, my, my time in Newton was good. Yeah. I, I love hearing that. And I'm also, there's so much conversation right now about teacher retention and like how do we get them to stay given how intense of a job it is and often how unsupported of a job it is and mm -hmm. you know some people would say oh well those scripted curriculums can help teachers stay more because it takes it you know lightens the load of the planning mm -hmm. but then you know other people argue well but it's the creativity that draws the teachers in the first place and i'm just curious like what did you do to sustain yourself regardless of newton or not like there's not that many teachers who stay for 40 years. So I know. <laughs> like what, what were some of the practices that you, I mean, I know you had your music. I'd love to hear about that. And yeah. also like, who did you connect with? How did you keep yourself from getting burned out? Yeah. Were there moments where you thought about leaving? I mean, well, I think that for me, I always had a dual life going on. I think that there are people who get into their teaching and their teaching is the only focus that they have. And they are very, very good at it, but it really consumes everything that they do. And to the point that some folks that I knew would say, I can't wait for the summer to be over because it's like they live in the classroom. And for me, I mean, I always had dual things going on from the very beginning. I was uh, doing theater. And I remember Newton uh, had kindergarten, it was, it was part time. So the, the other kids stayed until three, but kindergarten was done at 1130. And uh, so we were like halftime teachers or no, no, it's even 11, 1145. Yeah, kids got out. And then I remember when they shifted and kids got out at 1230. I was like, ah, 45 extra minutes. I have things to do. I have to be at the theater. <laughs> so uh, I remember being in, in um, class. And so if they left at 1145 and I had rehearsal at one o'clock, and it's winter time. So I'd be like, okay, I know it's gonna take them 20 minutes to get their boots on. We'd start getting ready about like, you know, 11.35. So that way at exactly 11.45, they could go home and I could head to the theater. I was doing um, acting work, uh, TV, commercial work, some films. So it was almost to the point that kids in my class thought that all teachers do star market commercials. Mine does, doesn't yours? And parents, if I'm, if my room did not have a piano, I remember one year parents went out and got me an old upright piano that they brought in because they knew that was important for me. So for me, it, it was one of those things of I was teaching because I loved teaching and it was my livelihood. That's where I, that was where I made my, you know, money to sustain myself. But I could also do theater and I could be in bands and I could do all that and I didn't have to rely on that as my livelihood which meant that I could do this job that I loved as a teacher make my livelihood and then that freed me to do theater and music and band work and all of that without depending on it for money so that I didn't feel I was one of those actors who was scrounging for every single job I would do a job or do a theater piece because I wanted to do one and uh I remember doing hair 
and some parents brought their kids to see me in Hair at the Turtle Lane Theater, and Hair had a lot of swearing in it. And I come out, and I'm about to do the thing, and I look first row, and there's like some parents and their kids. I was like, oh, wow. So I came in the next day, and I was like, okay, last night when you saw me saying a lot of those words that were inappropriate, that's called theater, and it's called acting. And we don't use those words in our real life. (laughs) But it was that sense of that sustained me a lot. And I mean, there's a real community of teachers going on there. I don't know if you remember Mr. Silverman from Bowen School, but we had a, a volleyball league. We would get together on, you know, certain days and we would do I think Tuesdays and Thursdays were short days or something. We had like a a floor hockey league. We'd get together with teachers from all of the elementary schools. So there was a real sense of camaraderie going on. And yeah, just a bunch of young teachers figuring this all out and, um, you know, sort of in it together. And so that's where I got a lot of strength from. I I just had other outlets that really gave me space to um, exercise everything that I wanted to do and still do this job of teaching that I loved. It didn't get in my way and my music didn't get in its way. In fact, I think I combined a lot of it, a lot of the theater. And that I, did. I mean, if you're if you're a teacher, you're you're pretty much on, you know, and if you have a, a an improvisational, you know, thing to you, it means you can just walk into a classroom and you can talk with kids and nothing that they do can throw you because you're just ready to go. And so I used my my theater. I used my uh, music in my classroom. So I sort of was able to meld the two in a very interesting way. I think had I been a fifth grade math teacher, it would have been a very different um, scenario. But I I chose the place that I liked and I liked working with five and six year old kids. Um, Yeah. Alec, I don't know if you're feeling the same way, but camp listening to you, it it almost sounds like you're describing a different era or a different planet. Like I'm thinking about (laughs) in, in, in a beautiful way, right? Like the being able to sustain yourself in the afternoons and the weekends and the summers, uh, you know, through this other set of passions and talents you had, and then bring those into classroom. I just think about our the teachers I work with now, and they're, I mean, they're in their classrooms from 7 a.m. till 5 p.m. And, you know, their summer ends at the beginning of August, and there's three or four weeks of staff development and learning. And I'm really torn. I'm curious what you'd say, because I feel like on the one hand, there's a recognition of how complex, like both intellectually and and academically and and social emotionally teaching is and how much planning often goes into the best teaching. Yes. And so there's this like, well, we do need to have conversations as a staff about these things and we do need time to plan collaboratively and we uh, we do need to be meeting with parents regularly and, and all of this. And then there's another part of me that thinks if all of our teachers had a little bit more buffer around their days and their years to do things that they love that they can then bring into their teaching and their projects, like we might all benefit, including, you know, mainly the students and and our teachers might be staying longer and they might not be burning out so quickly. So Mm -hmm. I don't know what to make of that really. Yeah. I mean, I, I, in the last um, seven years, you know, after I retired full time and I stayed at, um, I was stayed at the angel school and I was there for, seven years and, and subbing and doing whatever else was necessary. I mean, I really looked at how the job had changed. I, and one, I mean, technology changed a lot of things. And, you know, and, and technology had been coming and, and building all the time anyway. So you can't stop time. You can't stop progress from moving on. But I, you know, sort of began to um, look at the 
teaching job that teachers had. And, and again, as you said, so much of it was in the planning of what you're going to do and, and, you know, the, the, the gathering of, of what you're going to do in, in terms of your tech and the presentation. And you needed to have your, um, your entire schedule written on the whiteboard because that way, if anyone walked into the classroom, they should be able to look at that whiteboard and know where you are at that moment and to know what your kids are going to learn that day. And I found that so stifling. Because when I was teaching, it was sort of like something would happen that might turn your entire focus of what you were teaching to a different area. And you were allowed to just go there. And so the thought that I need to have my entire day listed in such a way that a stranger could walk in and they should be able to look at that schedule and say, yes, that's where you want to be now. And the other one that I love was that anyone should be able to walk in and say to a child in your classroom, so what are you doing right now? And that that child should be able to, between the board and everything, should be able to tell them very succinctly that we're doing this, this, this. I'm like, I'm not sure that I want a six-year-old to be able to do that. I really don't know if, if I'm comfortable with that. I, I, I would hope that your answer would be, what do you mean? Well, well, are you? Oh, you mean? Well, I'm gonna do read this book, but yeah, we were just playing. We were, and then we did a, and then we did a song. I mean, I want them to have a sense of there was some, there was some leeway and buffer in their lives that they could be kids. So I get the, 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 the situation that because of where we are, our planning and what's necessary, and our coordination with other people, and how we put this all together is very necessary. But there is also a part of me that kids do so much independently these days between their uh, devices and their things that they learn on that it's like I, I, I'd like to do some more communal working on some other kinds of things because you're probably, you know, if they, if they, I sometimes thought that if kids could swipe left that it would make me go away from teaching in front of them when I was subbing in fourth, fifth grade, it's like dude, I'm just going to swipe left and you'll leave me alone. I can go back to my device and finish doing what I'm doing. So I absolutely understand it. It's just it would be hard for someone like me and where I came from in my upbringing of education to be a teacher today. I mean, I could I could probably pull it off, but it would be a, it'd be a hard slug for me. Mm. <laughs> What would be your advice to, to young teachers now, right? Like, this is what I do with my life now. Oh, my God. <laughs> well, I don't know. Teachers now, I'd be telling them something that's not going to help them. They'd be like, Sarah, uh, yeah, your, your kindergarten teacher told me this, and it totally doesn't work. He was like, hang loose, be free. I Yeah, keep going. Go ahead. I'll try to think of an answer. Okay. No, I, I wouldn't feel too pressured. I'm just curious more about that like how in this environment that it, it sounds like you do know a bit you know you've lived through some changes and you know kind of the ways things feel now for a young teacher who has the creativity who has the inspiration who loves the children you know and is hoping to stay in the field for a long time you know uh, and mm -hmm. that's that's one of the things we look for in, in the teachers we bring into my program is folks who aren't just like oh well i'll teach for a couple of years and i'll go into policy we hear that a lot like, oh wow yeah. you know um but if they're if they're planning to stay and they are they do have the instinct to be more improvisational and creative and also you know their training is going to teach them how to manage some of the demands that schools and communities make now like what 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 wisdom might you have to share to them um, or what might you want to tell your your young teacher self if you could go back and like <laughs> talk to yeah, him yeah I would say that that you should expect that in the first few years of your teaching. It is a real process of pulling 
all of that study and all of that practice and all of that together and it's going to be hard and that there is that time where you um you're just on the edge of your seat making sure that you've got all, all of your curriculum covered and that you've used all the practices and you've done all these things but that to know and i know it sounds cliche but it's that sense that it that it does get better and i think that once teachers are comfortable with their field of what, you know, whatever their grade level, what they're teaching. I think injecting yourself into what you do is so important. There's a friend of mine, his name is Doug Herbst, and he is, he uh, teaches out in Medway, and he um, he did fourth grade um, when I was working at Bowen, and he was there. But this is a guy who, I mean, he's, he's a soccer fanatic. He is a New York Yankees fan. But he knew his curriculum, he had that down, but he also shared with kids who he was. So every kid in his class knew, Mr. Herbst is a Yankee fan. And if you go in and you start talking some smack about the Red Sox, it's not gonna be cute. Cause you, you got, you know, he's gonna go, but they would do stuff they do like, you know, baseball scores and the, and the run batting average of blah, blah, blah. And just like, and, but it, it's, it's bringing yourself to your job in such a way that the kids totally know who you are and respect you as their teacher, but they also know that you, not a friend is not the word, but they know you really like them and they really like you because that's, that's half of it right there. I think if you're not genuine with yourself and with your kids, they, they can sense that. And that's why I say with, with young teachers, like you, you really, you need a good, you know, I don't know how many years I'm going to say, but, you, you you need that gelling period and then when it does work you know it's 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 just awesome i remember my first year of teaching i was going to be everybody's friend and i came in and i think i gave my phone number and it was like so you know if, if anybody wants to call me or say anything and i remember being at home with um my husband now my partner bill and the phone rings and he's like hello and it was this voice was like eh, eh, is mr harris there and i was like <laughs> Who? He said, I don't know what's a kid. And I was like, after that year, it's like, okay, you do not give your phone number. You don't want to be there, you know, everybody's pals. So I was just like, you know, I'm your best friend. Call me up and I will come to every birthday party. And I will, and it's like, you know, okay, you don't need to do all that. They will love you, you know? But yeah, but you need, you need time to just figure out the art of teaching and then put yourself in it. And it takes a little while, but, but it, when it gels up, it's, it's awesome. Well, thank you, thank you, thank you. Thank you so much, Kemp, for taking the time. It's amazing to see you. Welcome. Hopefully see Alrighty. you soon. Okay. Good seeing you. Bye. Bye. Thanks, Alec. My pleasure. Okay, bye-bye. Hi Tech High Unboxed is hosted and edited by me, Alec Patton. Our theme music is by Brother Herschel. A huge thank you to Sarah Fine and Kemp Harris for this week's episode. Now, I need to tell you, in addition to teaching and acting, Kemp has released some fantastic albums. His latest is Live at the Bird SF. We put a link to it in the show notes. Thanks for listening.